Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 39. Glad to have you back on the program. Thanks for listening. And... This particular podcast is going to focus on an individual. Um, in my mind, one of the most important individuals in American history. But someone, if you were to get your typical seventh grade, as Tom Woods calls it, seventh grade uh, American history, you are going to be taught this person is one of the greatest villains in American history. But of all people, in antebellum American history in particular, this individual is still studied around the world for his contributions to um, political philosophy. And so I think it's very important that we understand this person for who he was and not take that standard seventh grade American history version and denounce this person or discredit this person because if you want to have a fuller understanding of American political philosophy, moving forward in particular, and moving forward with this idea of think locally, act locally, uh, federalism, and this type of thing, well, then you need to understand who this person was and why he's important, not just for antebellum American history, but uh, for American history today. And I'm speaking about John C. Calhoun. Now, I had the idea to talk about Calhoun when I attended the one day. I was up at Mises University, and I was listening to a talk by Walter Block. Now, Walter Block is one of the most ardent libertarians in the United States. He was friends with Murray Rothbard. Um, he is one of the giants in the modern libertarian movement. And he said some very nice things about John C. Calhoun. And you hear that a lot from libertarians. You know, John C. Calhoun is an important part of um, their belief in decentralization, at least, you know, philosophically. And that doesn't seem to make sense to a lot of people because, you know, John C. Calhoun uh, is attached to the Old South. In fact, he was considered to be the spokesman of the Old South in the period leading up to his death in 1850. Now, uh, I worked with, my, my advisor in graduate school was Clyde Wilson, and Clyde Wilson was the editor of the John C. Calhoun papers for over two decades, and um, he wrapped that up uh, right around the, I can't remember the exact years, right around 2000 uh, in that time period. He wrapped up the last volume of the John C. Calhoun papers, but he was editor of the Calhoun papers for, for a very long time. And that was his primary responsibility at, at South Carolina, other than 
uh, having graduate students like myself and, and many others. Uh, but this is what he did. And it was, um, you think about uh, someone who <laughs> someone who works editing the Calhoun papers, and you get this image in your mind of what they're going to be doing and what their office looks like, and they have this huge wing, and they've got all these assistants and all these people out there. Do- there was just two of them. Uh, now, in, in, uh, they, um, they had three little offices, and they spent a lot of time looking over <laughs> microfilm and letters and all kinds of things. Um, and this, this was, uh, you know, a very arduous task, labor-intensive, to go out and produce uh, these edited volumes of Calhoun's speeches, letters, correspondence, et cetera, et cetera. And Clyde was often asked, why don't you write a biography of John C. Calhoun? And his response was, I've done it in all of the introductions to the multi-volumes that have been produced about Calhoun's uh, papers, you know, his, his, uh, his correspondence and, and, and uh, speeches, et cetera, et cetera. So he said, I didn't need to write a biography. Of course, uh, today, probably still the best biography of John C. Calhoun is um, Coit's uh, biography of, of Calhoun, which came out uh, well over uh, half a century ago. So Calhoun is, for some, uh, the most important villain in American history, and for others, he is a founder of you know maybe American conservatism, libertarians like Calhoun. Uh, in fact, uh, if you look at some recent works, you know there's. Uh, in 2012, Clyde Wilson and I published a book entitled Forgotten Conservatives in American History, and John C. Calhoun is included. And of course, Clyde wrote that chapter. I wouldn't write that chapter, uh, not when you have Clyde Wilson writing the book with you, but he wrote a chapter on Calhoun and how important Calhoun was for American conservatism moving forward. And then uh, last year, uh, Garland Tucker wrote a book entitled Conservative Heroes, and he included a chapter on Calhoun. It's a very interesting book because you don't often get this perspective. This is an ISI publication, but virtually everyone in the book is a Southerner. And uh, normally that's not the case when you start talking about conservative heroes in your mainstream conservative thought. Usually you're going to start with Hamilton and then Marshall and on down the line. But uh, Garland Tucker started with Jefferson and the old Republicans and then moved forward. It's a very interesting uh, position. It's something that Clyde and I essentially did in Forgotten Conservatives a few years before that. But, you know, we are the minority. We're the minority in that push. Now, and I say the word minority because the standard interpretation about Calhoun comes from people like Samuel Flagg Bemis. And I remember back in graduate school, my, my roommate in graduate school, I heard him cracking up one day. And, uh, you know, Bemis is, an, is the typical establishment nationalist historian. And uh, you know, he has done some decent work on American foreign policy, uh, but he had written a book on, uh, on John Quincy Adams, and the title of the book is John Quincy Adams and the Union. It's a, it's a horrible book. Uh, it, takes, <laughs> it takes historical, quote-unquote, objectivity to a new level because it doesn't exist, even though he tries to say it exists. And he's back there laughing, and he says, yeah, uh, you know, here is Calhoun, the defender of slavery. And, uh, you know, that's that's the position that you get on Calhoun. That's all he was. The defender of slavery. 
And, of course, every image of Calhoun you're going to see is when he had uh, tuberculosis and he's dying and he's, his face is sunken in. He's got this long hair combed back and the neck beard. and He looks awful. But, you know, there's a lot of images out there of Calhoun as a nice-looking man. When he was in his 40s, he had a great sense of humor. He was vigorous. One of the more important people in American history. I mean, the guy served in the uh, House of Representatives and the Senate as uh, Secretary of State, Vice President. So he was a very important individual, you know, considered for the presidency several times. Uh, his home is there at Clemson University, right in the middle of the campus. It's, in, it's called Fort Hill. And um, now it's, uh, you know, his, his son-in-law, uh, Clemson, got the property. But um, And uh, then that became, you know, Clemson University. But that's his property. That's his, that's his land. Uh, and, of course, Calhoun's contributions to American political philosophy cannot be matched by, by virtually anyone. I mean, save someone like Thomas Jefferson, uh, but particularly the antebellum period. He was making uh, contributions to how people thought about government that other people in the world still study, particularly when it comes to resisting central authority. And this Bemis book you know, was actually reviewed by Richard Weaver. And if you don't know who Richard Weaver is, you should. Uh, one of the great uh, 20th century contributors to American political philosophy. But uh, he wrote a review of Samuel Flagg Bemis's uh, John Quincy Adams in the Union, uh, and this is what he said, quote, In the second instance, he seems most ungenerous to John C. Calhoun. Every stick is used to beat this American statesman. He chortles over Calhoun's about face on the tariff issue. In a fashion hardly congruous with critical scholarship, he captions Adams, quote, defender of freedom, and Calhoun, defender of slavery. It's just as if Adams had to have a heavy, and Calhoun is it. The reader goes, gets no inkling from what is said here that Calhoun, through his doctrine of the concurrent majority, is one of the most effective of all anti-totalitarian spokesmen, and that as far as political theory goes, he erected a sounder scaffolding for liberty with power than did Adams himself. And that's true. This is why libertarians like Calhoun, because he's, he produced this great amount of information, of ammunition, more importantly, to resist strong central authority. So what we what's happened with Calhoun, like what's happened with a lot of people in American history, he was a slaveholder, and he did defend slavery at one point. Uh, and if you want to read uh, what Clyde said about that, there's a couple of very good articles on the Abbeville Institute website. Uh, John C. Calhoun and Slavery as a Positive Good, what he said and what he did not say. Uh, so I'll link those in the show notes so you can look at that. But uh, so, but often what happens is people say, well, he's, he's pro-slavery, so we can't like anything that he said. This is what you get with even now Thomas Jefferson at times. Well, Jefferson was a slaveholder. He's pro-slavery, so we can't like him. Uh, so what you're doing essentially is saying that histor history has to start uh, in 1975, American history, because every, every, everyone before that, I mean, you have a few people that weren't tainted by racism or slavery, but if we don't start history until 1975, then you really can't have any of the old American heroes. And Calhoun, of course, would be one of these people that's often vilified for his support of slavery. But if you get past that, which I think you should, 
Calhoun becomes one of the greatest political thinkers America has ever produced. His uh, views on banking, for example, on political economy, on federalism, on the Constitution, I mean, on how to resist central authority, these things, these ideas are still current because we're still wrestling with the same issues here in 2016 that Calhoun was wrestling with in the early 19th century, in the 1830s, in the 1840s. His views on executive power and how dangerous it was. Uh, his opposition to the war with Mexico was based primarily on the belief that James K. Polk was abusing executive power. And I remember I wrote an, uh, a uh, paper on the Mexican War as an undergraduate in a seminar class. And at that time, I had a little different views on the powers of the central government. And I really like James K. Polk. My, my vision of James K. Polk over the years has changed quite substantially. But I wrote this paper, and there was a student in there, and he was you know, just a knucklehead, uh, dim-witted fool. And this guy started saying, well, oh, yeah, yeah, the Mexican War is all about slavery because all the slaveholders supported the war, and all the anti- anti-slavery people were against it. Well, that's very curious because the most outspoken critic of the war, in many ways, was John C. Calhoun, who's called the defender of slavery. And when, you, when I asked this individual about that, he had no response. <laughs> Calhoun thought that Polk was usurping power from the Congress uh, and taking it to himself, arrogating it to himself, and this was very dangerous for the future of American government. And war tends to do that. As we've seen all throughout American history, the, the one thing that creates more and more power for the executive branch unconstitutionally is war. You saw it in the 20th century over and over again, but you did see it in the 19th century. Look at Lincoln. Look at James K. Polk. Uh, so war is the greatest bane of liberty. It's something that should be avoided at all costs. And the mere threat of war produces a climate where the government assumes powers that it doesn't have, assumes unconstitutional authority, or it usurps power from the legislative branch, or it usurps power from the states. And Calhoun understood that very well. So when you look at Calhoun, why do libertarians like Calhoun? Well, he was right about banking. He's right about centralization of American finance. He's right about power and liberty. Uh, and there have been many collected works of Calhoun, uh, many over the years. Uh, one was put out by the Liberty Fund. It's entitled Union and Liberty, the Political Philosophy of John C. Calhoun, edited by Ross Lentz. Uh, Ross Lentz was a great uh, political philosopher who uh, died not long ago, uh, but he, uh, he had a very nice collection of Calhoun's political philosophy. Then you had a, another one uh, by uh, Lee Cheek, who's um, a, a very uh, good, very sound historian, political scientist, and he uh, had a collected volume of John C. Calhoun's writing and speeches. Um, and so it's a, it's a very good book. 
and it's one you might want to pick up. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's actually um, published by Regnery. But the one I like the most was produced by Clyde Wilson himself. And I think that um, you can't go wrong when you pick up something that Clyde has produced on John C. Calhoun. So again, I've got the... Uh, the chapter on Clyde Wilson, uh, that Clyde Wilson wrote in Forgotten Conservatives in American History. If you want an autographed copy of that, I've got them available on my website. Uh, so uh, you can pick that up. In fact, um, I'll have a few that are autographed by both myself and Clyde Wilson. Um, and so you should, if you want to get that, go out to my website and pick that up. And, uh, you know, again, Conservative Heroes by uh, Garland Tucker. Uh, but there have been many things produced about John C. Calhoun. But this this particular collection of essays, uh, The Essential Calhoun, um, by Transaction Publishers, um, is just fantastic. And so I'm going to read some selections. And the thing that I like about Calhoun is his views on federalism and the relationship between the states and the general government. A lot of people don't realize, you know, we think that there are uh, three branches of government. Really, there's four. The entire federal structure is supported by four pillars. The one that's often left out is the states. We think about the executive branch, the legislative branch, the judicial branch, but we leave out the states because, in fact, that is the greatest column of the four, the most sturdy. The general government, as was said over and over again in 1788 when the Constitution was going through ratification, cannot exist without that pillar. It is the greatest pillar holding up the government because it's what the Constitution is based on, a union, a compact between states, a union of states. And so destroying that, I mean, even the people, the proponents of the Constitution, now I think that many of them were lying when they said the states would still have a lot of control in this government, you know, Hamilton foremost among them. What he really wanted to do and what he was saying the government would do were two different things. And as he became Secretary of the Treasury, that became clear, which is why I'm writing a whole book about Hamilton and that and his constitutional machinations. But the states were the greatest pillar. They all said this. Without the states, this government crumbles. And one of the arguments actually made for the Constitution, particularly by people like William Richardson Davey and James Iredell from North Carolina, was that the states wanted to crush the government. They would just withhold sending their senators. Because then no business could be conducted. There was no, there would be no quorum. If the states just didn't send their senators, then the government would fall apart. They don't have to. They could withdraw them and say, you can't go. And that would be that. And this was an argument that was made, quite forcefully, in fact, during the ratification debates. But, of course, we can't do that anymore because now we have direct election of U.S. senators. So... One thing that really needs to happen, I think, if you want to talk about structural reform of the Constitution, just repeal the 17th Amendment or replace it with an amendment. Uh, and and I, I would say replace it, not only repeal it, but replace it with an amendment that expressly states senators can be recalled by the states. And then you put the states back in the government. I mean, that would be an easy fix. It would require amending the Constitution, but it would be an easy fix. You know, for example, if uh, your state doesn't like what... Uh, the general government's doing, they can just re recall their senators and say, okay, you're coming home. And if enough states did that, there would be no quorum to conduct business and the government would shut down. And the states would do it. 
not an individual like, uh, you know, a Ted Cruz or a Rand Paul or, you know, someone like that. You know, there's often this threat. We're going to shut down the government. We're going to filibuster these bills and we're going to shut down the government. Well, this would be better because then it would it would actually be the states doing it and not just an individual. You know, Texas could just recall their senators uh, and uh, several other states could do the same thing. So I want to read some selections from Calhoun on um, his views on the rights of the states and who Calhoun actually was. And there's continuity between Calhoun and the founding generation if you look at political philosophy. In fact, Calhoun himself said that uh, you know he was following in the footsteps of people like Thomas Jefferson. So let me read some of these. This is from a letter to Joseph G. Swift in 1823. He said, quote, I have done nothing in which I have not been supported by the examples of the political fathers of the Republican school. My acts are all covered by the acts of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. There is not one that can be attributed to me, but what an example may be found in one and all of these illustrious men. In July of 1824, he wrote this. If there is one portion of the Constitution which I most admire, it is the distribution of power between the state and general governments. It is the only portion that is novel and peculiar. The rest has been more or less copied. This is our invention and is altogether our own. And I consider it to be the greatest improvement which has been made in the science of government after the division of power into legislative, executive, and judicial. I mean, think about that for a, sec- for a second. Calhoun is saying this is the greatest advancement ever made in government. It's a, a uniquely American contribution. The power of the states, what he's talking about is real federalism. That is the greatest contribution that the United States made to political philosophy. Federalism. And it's something that we're crushing every single day. Because we don't know what it means or how it works. Because we're taught that John C. Calhoun is the defender of slavery. That all these uh, Republicans, lowercase r, all these Republicans were just stick stick in the mud, uh, you know, roadblocks to real good, efficient government. That federalism was just some type of knee-jerk reaction to, uh, to the nationalist school. Well, it wasn't. The nationalist school actually was a reaction to real American government. And because uh, the North won the war, it became codified as the primary belief of the American founding, that we were going to have a national government, that the states were going to be subverted to the national authority, and that uh, we were going to have this great consolidated empire and that somehow you know these 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 fringe people these states rights people were just on the fringe they didn't know what they were talking about this is just some type of reaction to uh, you know defending slavery for example but if you look at american history that's the exact opposite is true leading up to 1861 the exact opposite is true north and south i mean Daniel Webster, who's considered to be one of the greatest defenders of nationalization by the time of the 1830s rolled around, in 1812 was talking about secession. 
was talking about nullification. Northerners used it quite a lot. So let me continue with what uh, Calhoun says. Without it, meaning federalism, free states in the present condition of the world could not exist or must have existed without safety or respectability. If limited to a small territory, they must be crushed by the great monarchical powers or exist only at, the at their discretion. But if extended over a great surface, the concentration of power and patronage necessary for government would speedily end in tyranny. It is only by this admirable distribution that a great extent of territory with a population, I'm sorry, with proportional population and power can be reconciled with freedom and consequently that safety and respectability be given to free states. As much then as I value freedom, in the same degree do I value states' rights. But it is not only in the abstract that I admire the distribution of power between the general government and the states, I approve of the actual distribution of the two powers which is made by our Constitution. Were it in my power, I would make no change. So think about what he just said there. It's a very powerful passage. If you don't have distribution of power between small, between the general government and the state governments, he says free states in the present condition of the world could not exist. Free states could not exist. If, state, if states are limited to small territory, they'd be crushed by monarchical powers. If they're over large territories, like the United States, they would be consolidated. And that's exactly what's happened in the United States. Without the states, you have consolidation of government and tyranny. Calhoun said this in 1824. 1824. Now, of course, many philosophers, you know, Montesquieu is often Trump, you know, trotted out and said, here we have an uh, example of, you know, large states can exist over, uh, over uh, or I should say republics can exist over large territories because eventually you're going to have tyranny. And that's what Calhoun is, is saying here. But with the states, you avoid that problem because you protect the local. You protect the culture, the, the economics, the government of the local. You protect the individual then. You have to have federalism in order for real liberty to exist. Calhoun is often considered to be a disunionist as well, and he wasn't. He was actually a unionist. There's a very good quote here from 1830. He says this, Consolidation and disunion, the two extremes of our system, they are both equally dangerous and ought both to be equally the objects of our apprehension. I mean, think about that. So Calhoun always said he was a unionist. He was for preserving the union of the fathers the original Constitution. He wasn't for destroying it through consolidation and nationalization. He would say that was destroying the Union, eventually what was being promoted, promoted by the general government. He said this in 1831, the state and general governments, each imperfect when viewed as separate and distinct governments, but taken as a whole, forming one system with each checking and controlling the other, unsurpassed by any work of man in wisdom and sublimity. Think about that. He, so he's, he's essentially admitting that the state governments are another, another leg in the table 
of the federal system. In fact, the most important leg in the, in the table of the federal system. They're another branch of government. The state governments. They support the whole. Calhoun said this in 1831. No man can distinguish my views from, the, from that of the party in 98. And of course, he's talking about 1798. The question is in truth between the people and the Supreme Court. We contend that the great conservative principle of our system is in the people of the states as parties to the constitutional compact and our opponents that it is in the Supreme Court. This is the sum total of the whole dispute. And I told him a a shallow statesman who, after proper examination, does not see, which is most in conformity to to the genius of our system and the most effective and safe in its operation. So Calhoun is saying the real question is, who has the ultimate authority in deciding constitutionality of federal law? Is it the Supreme Court or is it the state governments? And Calhoun would come down and say it's the state governments, the people of the states. Actually, what Calhoun would say, and this is a very important distinction to make, the people of the states in convention. And uh, this particular week, I'll be doing a talk about that, and it'll be eventually on YouTube. But it's on... Uh, the importance of conventions in this idea of state interposition or nullification. Uh, there still are, if you're listening to this podcast today, it's it's uh, Monday, uh, August 8th. There still are a couple of days you could register for this conference. It's in Atlanta. Um, I'll link to that uh, as well. It's being uh, put on by the Abbeville Institute, and it's on nullification. Uh, there'll be some great uh, speakers there. Uh, Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center is going to be there talking about modern nullification movements. Uh, but also, um, you know, uh, there'll be uh, three attorneys, one who's a judge, um, and so that'll be good, and then myself and, uh, and Don Livingston, who's the founder of the Abbeville Institute. But if you've got time, it's, it's a one-day event Saturday, um, 99 bucks to get in the door, that covers your lunch, and you get to hear some great talks about, uh, about nullification. I would highly recommend going. Uh, but that is uh, coming up August 13th. So, this idea of the states, I mean, this is why I like Calhoun so much, because of these, these statements and what he's saying. He's, he's following the principles of, of 98. Now, what did Calhoun actually say about this idea of nullification? He said, quote, nullification is not my word. I never use it. I always say state interposition. My purpose is a suspensive veto to compel the installing, the highest tribunal provided by the Constitution to decide on the point in dispute. What he's saying there are the states. I do not wish to destroy the Union. I only wish to make it honest. Calhoun said in 1833, that he had not said that the people of the state might resume the powers which had been granted to the general government, but that they, that they had a right to judge of the extent of those powers and whether they had been exceeded. Near the end of his life, well, 1844, he said this, But I wish my friends all to understand that my adherence to the great conservative doctrine of state interposition and confidence in its 
efficiency when properly called into action was never stronger than at present. I entertain no doubt that the salvation of our union and the permanency of our free institutions depend on it. I'll get into that in a second. There can be no delusion greater than to hope to secure the one or preserve the other without it. As much as I value our union in our glorious federal system, federal in italics, in the same degree do I value state interposition as the only means by which they can be saved. This again, he's saying interposition, or nullif- you know, what he calls interposition, nullification, is a way to save the union. The opposite of that is secession. Because if you cannot stop, if you cannot check the powers of the general authority, then the only thing you have left is to leave. That's the only recourse you have. If you can't conclusively do what Calhoun is saying here, and that's arrest the tyranny of the general government, of the central authority, through state interposition, through nullification, then what do you have left? So he's saying state interposition, nullification, is union. It's not disunion, as Daniel Webster called it. Of course, Daniel Webster was singing a different tune in 1812. It is for the union. And Calhoun said in 1839, the union of the states, he is the most faithful and best friend to the general government who protects the rights of the states. So when we talk about American government, and I bring up this idea of think locally, act locally. What I'm getting at there is federalism. It's something you can do at your, in your own life. I mean, I, I've put this down to the individual. and What you can do to improve your own life. Because, again, your home, your city, your county, your state, that's really your world. I mean, we get so caught up in quote-unquote national politics that things that, I mean, some of them do affect us, but a lot of them don't. If we can just improve around us, you change your world. And Calhoun is saying the states, I mean, the states are the way to improve America, not the general government. It was never designed to do that. If you read the Philadelphia Convention and then you read the ratifying debates, this becomes clear. This is why you have, you know, biannual elections. Biannual can mean either, you know, twice a year or every two years why you have elections for the House every two years, because it was actually argued they didn't need to be elected every year because they just had general concerns, meaning commerce and defense. And they don't need to have uh, you know, a representative ratio uh, of you know, 10,000 to 1 because they don't need to know the general concerns of the local community from which they're from, or they don't need to know the, the minute concerns, I should say. They just need to know the general concerns. What is it the general, you know, the general population wants? Those... those uh, purely local concerns will be handled by the local governments. But what we've done is allowed our U.S. House of Representatives, with a ratio way out of whack for any type of effective government, to now handle the minutiae the minutia of American political life. You know, what is your police department doing in your city? That's not a that's not a national concern. That's a concern for your local uh, city council or. Uh, county council or state legislature? What about education in your backyard? That's, that's of your concern for your school board or for your private school or for your homeschool family. I mean, that's, that's what that is. I mean, that's, that's where you get that. That's not a, a national concern. You had the nationalists saying it was. But at the end of the day, uh, 
your local is more important than anything else. And that's what Calhoun is saying here. If you don't have if you can't have the states block unconstitutional legislation, then what do you have left? You can't rely on the Supreme Court because it's part of the federal system. And that's the greatest takeaway from John C. Calhoun. And there's many other things. I mean, I could I could get into all kinds of issues with Calhoun. Again, banking, finance, the powers of the general government, uh, the executive branch. He made uh, just sagacious statements about all of these things. He was ahead of his time and understanding what was going to happen should the states be destroyed and crushed, as they were ultimately by 1865. They're impotent now. Not because the powers have gone away, but just because people think they're impotent. All it takes is, a, is a, an awakening, so to speak. And you're starting to see it little by little of real federalism. And uh, you can maybe start seeing this stuff again. And this is one thing that's going to be discussed in, in Atlanta on the 13th. So please don't discount John C. Calhoun from a 7th grade history position. He's the vendor of slavery. Calhoun is one of the greatest American political thinkers, one of the most unique American political thinkers, and someone that we should all study for his views on American government, the powers of the general government, the powers of the executive branch, banking, finance. I mean, he's an old Jeffersonian in that way. So I think that uh, at the end of the day, you know, we should respect John C. Calhoun. You know, Clyde calls him the great man. We should respect John C. Calhoun for his contributions to American history and government rather than just these, you know, cliches that are thrown around. You know, he's the defender of slavery, so we can't like this guy. That's so weak-minded. And so many people fall in that trap. And I hope if you listen to this podcast, that's not you. That you're not one of those weak-minded people. You can't be because you're listening to this, right? Uh, you obviously have uh, good taste. And you've got a good head on your shoulders if you're listening to my podcast. But go out and read some Calhoun. Get Forgotten Conservatives in American History. Uh, you know, Get the essential Calhoun or uh, Lee Cheek's uh, selected writings and speeches of Calhoun or uh, uh, Lentz's Union and Liberty. Get some Calhoun in your life. Because you'll be better for it, and you'll have better ammunition when it comes to defending your ideas of liberty and union and federalism and all these things that you know I discuss on this podcast. Um, if someone like Walter Block, who is an you know, anarcho-libertarian, likes John C. Calhoun, and if you're that kind of libertarian, I mean, he's not that bad then, right? Calhoun to sum this up, is one of the top 10 most important Americans in American history, without a doubt. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClain.